Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. And today I am welcome, or I'm going to welcome Polly Dobbs to our podcast. Uh, Polly, how are things going? Things are going great. Uh, I am in Peru, Indiana this morning speaking to you, which is my hometown and where my family farm is and now where my law practice is. You know, it's it's funny out in my neck of the woods, almost not all, but a lot of our towns have Indian names. You're like, whoa, whoa that's where I'm at today. Wenatchee, Yakima, Umatilla. Uh, but we don't have any towns that have country names, you know, as in. And I notice when I'm in the Midwest, you know, it's Mexico, Missouri, it's Peru, Indiana. It just seems like there's more country and that type of name back back in the Midwest or back east than there is out here. Yeah, we have quite an international flair in Indiana. <laughs> so um, why don't we start off with your background or for the audience out there, Polly is a um, an attorney based in Indiana. Uh, she and I have done several, uh, Farm Journal had a project called the Legacy Project dealing with succession planning and so on. So Polly and I have known each other now. Oh, we're getting older, Polly. I think it's getting close to 10 years, but uh, let's go through your background. Yeah, so I'm an estate planning attorney and a farm girl. And the point I'm at now in my life and career, I have merged those two things together. Um, but, you know, it took me a while to get here. So raised on a family farm um, in Miami County, Indiana, which is north central. Um, I grew up showing Angus cattle and was very involved in the Junior Angus Association. Um, and just very busy with all the chores on my family farm. And so when it was time to go to college, I needed a break and I <laughs> embraced the city life and I didn't want to do chores for a long time. Um, got a job after undergrad, then went back to law school and, and got a job at a, at a large law firm in downtown Indianapolis and I loved it. And I was away from home for about 18 years total. And um, for lots of reasons, uh, my husband and I decided to move back to our family farm about, about 11 years ago. Um, and with our with our two young children. And so um, Peru is about uh, two hours north of Indianapolis. And so uh, for a couple of years, I still worked for my indie firm. And, and you know, 11 years ago, nobody worked from home. So yeah. that was very new and novel. Um, but I would go to Indianapolis occasionally, but was generally still affiliated with that firm um, where I had been hired to, to do estate planning. Um, that is the uh, job offer that I got. That's the practice group that I was assigned to. So I was um, a part of a large firm, but a very small group of lawyers within that firm practiced in the sophisticated end of the spectrum of estate tax planning and planning for family-owned businesses. So when it came time for me to move home, um, you know, for over a decade in my practice, I'd been watching families fight over businesses, families fight over money, um, I'm the youngest of five children, and I told mom and dad, we're not going to move back to the farm unless you've put a plan in place that clearly outlines what you want for this farm, because, you know, three out of five could could vote to sell, and, and then, yep. you know, we, we'd be gone. And so I sent my parents to a different attorney uh, to avoid the conflict of interest, and my siblings think that their baby sister might have pulled a fast one. <laughs> I, I had mom and dad sit down with a different lawyer to talk through this and just saw how 
how they struggled with the issue with the yeah. issues. Um, farms are different than just securities in a in an investment account somewhere. It's so much more sentimental. There's a lot of family legacy behind that. Um, and it, it takes some special planning when you got a kid on the farm and kids off the farm and and want to try to find a fair balance. So that was really my light bulb moment when I realized, hey, I know estate planning and I know the estate tax parts of the Internal Revenue Code and that's the world I live in, but I'm from a farm background. And so if my parents are struggling with these issues, so is every other aging farmer that's trying to figure out what's next uh, for the next generation. So that's when I really kind of focused in my practice uh, and got involved with Farm Journal and and met you. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I think that's one thing. You know, we'll certainly uh, have some discussion maybe on the technical side, uh, but uh, you know, what you and I have both seen, whether it's in our family, whether it's in uh, farm businesses in general. Uh, the most important part is that family dynamics. So why don't you go through why you think that's really more, a lot of times more important than the nuts and bolts of estate tax planning? Oh, right. So I always say there there is no such thing as farm law. The statutes are not different that govern farmers versus anyone else. It's just the assets on the balance sheet are so different and the family dynamics as, as far as who's involved, who isn't, and what comes next. That is all so much more important than whatever tax the federal or your state government might charge on the farm at your death. Um, and you know the best example of that is just a simple will or no will at all is gonna end up with spouse and kids equally owning everything. And if that spouse is your third or fourth wife, but you've got kids from the first two or three wives, um, and some are involved in the farm and others aren't, that is just a disaster. Yeah. So no planning or simple planning um, it is really just the, the greed comes out, you know, right after the funeral and everybody wants to get as much as they can. And, and that's rarely um, the right answer for that family farm. So I try to stop all my clients from digging into the tax discussions until me, they tell me about their kids and I hear about their personalities and their work ethic and who's where and who might come back or who is back. All that's more more important. And and at least once a quarter, I get a phone call from somebody who says, dad died and my stepmom is selling the farm. Help me. Like, yeah, like yeah. I can't. Your dad yeah. put her name on the deed. She owns 100 percent of it. Now she can do what she wanted. Um, that must be what dad wanted or he would have planned differently. So I just. I see all sorts of terrible outcomes that weren't intended, but if you don't plan accordingly, life happens and it gets messy and greedy. Yeah, and you know, I typically, and I, I, I don't want to sound, um, and the right word isn't sexist, but uh, you know, the, it, it seems like when dad is the one that survives and then ends up marrying the the new new wife, especially the new wife, let's say, is twenty years younger, because that's happening more and more. It seems like that's when the conflicts appear to happen. I, I don't see it as much the other way. Do you agree with that or or are you calling me sexist? No, no, I absolutely agree with that. And and, and usually in that scenario, it's not dad's fault. It's not the surviving husband's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's moving on and finding love again, but is susceptible, especially after a certain age, you get a little haze of dementia setting in very susceptible to that new wife, to those new stepchildren who say things like, well, if you really loved me, you'd put my name on this deed. And, <laughs> and if 
if you die tomorrow, what about me? I don't want to be kicked out in the cold. You know, you should make sure that I inherit everything. And don't worry, I promise to share it with your kids. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a slippery slope, and it's usually not intentional. But uh, as we age, we're more susceptible to the, that kind of influence. So in that case, you know, let's say that uh, you are getting somebody that that wants to come to you for advice. What are some of the options to maybe help correct or fix that issue? Uh, you know, if somebody came in and said, hey, I'm thinking about or uh, husband and wife that comes in and let's say it's the case where uh, we think at some point the wife is going to pass away or husband is going to pass away, it doesn't matter which one. Uh, what are some of the options to help make sure that those kids are protected, you know, because the, the wife or whoever's going to pass away, they want to make sure that their heirs, that their kids are going to get their half of the assets. So what are some of the options we can do in that situation? Trusts are a wonderful option to help to help with this, and and trusts should be thought of like a Swiss Army knife. They they can do a whole lot of stuff or just a little bit of simple stuff, and and they it should be drafted to match exactly the facts and circumstances for for that family. And and I preface it with all that because a lot of people have seen terrible situations with trusts and they ended badly or everybody got in a fight. And so they say, oh, fooey, I'll never have a trust. Yeah. No, you got to have the right trust that was drafted for you and for your family. And that names the right people as successor trustees after death to strike whatever the right balance is that that person wants. And so, you know, we love that fifth wife and we want to make sure that she's got income supporting her in the manner in which she's been living as long as dad's alive. Great. You know, a marital trust for the for the benefit of spouse or a credit shelter trust or whatever kind of Swiss Army trust we draft. Spouse gets the income for life. But at death, spouse can't control where that goes. It's not yeah. to her kids or to her next husband's kids or whatever um, the outcome might be. It's back to the natural born descendants um of of the the person who created the trust so i, I hear all the time i want to keep it in the blood i want to keep it in my blood well trusts help us do that and they can be really flexible and custom tailored to do exactly what you want so don't expect to walk into a lawyer's office and have them pull a form trust off a shelf and hand it to you and that be the right answer because that yeah. probably would be a disaster too yeah yeah that's what you definitely don't want to have happen matter of fact you know lots of times when I'm getting ready to meet with somebody and let's say I have a little bit of knowledge about them and we're going to talk about succession planning, you know, sometimes in my mind, I have this preconceived idea what might work best. But as long as we're very open, a lot of times I go into that meeting and I find out, uh oh, you know, there's a couple facts I didn't know about or, you know, here's one kid that uh, everybody on the outside thinks he's the best kid in the world. And on the inside, the family thinks he's the black sheep, you know, so the, all those things if you get that preconceived notion, you're not going to serve your client very well. Yeah, that's right. And I, I always say, I got to know everything, every skeleton in the closet, every family secret that's embarrassing. You throw it out on the table and you shine some light on it and you figure out how to deal with it. And, and typically as the estate planning attorney, I'm the newest advisor at the table. I'm just yep. meeting these people trying to learn all about them. And that, that intake process takes a while. So ideally you tackle this in a team approach so that your accountant, your banker, farm manager, whoever's involved in your life, who has known you for decades and knows all the dirty secrets is at the table helping. 
because something I think might be a great idea, uh, somebody who meets with you four times a year or six times a year is going to know, oh, no, 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 that would cause more problems than the good it will do. And that's very important. So I'm a huge advocate for a team approach. Now, one thing, and we're starting to get maybe a little bit more technical, and this is, uh, you know, this is uh, sometimes, you know, the the tax nerd in me, I really like this, but I try to make uh, the audience not too nerdy here, but, uh, you know, we've heard the term special power of appointment. So let's go back to that husband and wife and, uh, and what what would be a special power of appointment and how would that affect a trust? Maybe in that situation where, you know, the, the wife gave the husband a special power of appointment and does that create some issues down the road after she passes away? Yeah, so the key is really flexibility. So you want to draft your estate plan, your trust, like you die tomorrow. And it's got to be flexible enough so that if your spouse lives for a few more decades and sees how things shake out with the kids and grandkids and who's on good paths or who's addicted to meth in an alley, the spouse could have a special power of appointment to make adjustments to the ultimate plan that there's no way that the person who signed the trust could have known it was going to go that direction. So I love special powers um, and I um, I customize them to to only be as um, broad as the person is comfortable with. So typically the special power is limited to descendants. Any yeah. of my blood relatives are beneficiaries, but if it's supposed to be equal thirds among kids and one of the kids is addicted to meth, we'll cut them out. Let yeah. the spouse have the power to say, uh-uh, it's going to go halvesies between the good kids. Or, yeah, it can still be in thirds, but that third's going to stay in trust and not be distributed directly to the meth addict. So that kind of flexibility. Or a lot of my clients like the ability to include charities. Okay, spouse, after I've been dead for 20 years, if you think there's too much money in the trust for these kids or you want to benefit a charity, well, you could cut them in. But typically a special power of appointment would not let that surviving spouse cut in the new wife and the stepkids and right. grandkids in that new family tree. So it's it's limited in scope, um, but it can be very, very helpful. And, you know, as long as we're um, getting technical, some of these powers of appointment can really help with, with tax planning. Right. So as the laws change and develop, if it turns out that the kids are super rich in their own right, and it would be terrible if they inherited this money from their deceased parent, well, we can use trust to keep that in, in trust for the benefit of the super rich child without adding to their balance sheet and exacerbating their own estate tax problem. Exactly, exactly. Now, um, one of, the, you know, we talked about that special power of appointment versus, so really what you're talking about, I'm gonna call it a special power of appointment versus a general power of appointment. We, we typically don't wanna give a broad general, hey, you can appoint anybody because then the new spouse's kids can come into play. Yeah, right. General powers, um, they're used sparingly either to qualify for a marital deduction in a certain type of spousal trust. And so that's really for more the warden June Cleavers of the world. They have only been married to each other um, and they want to keep things super simple. They might be comfortable with a general power of appointment, but, you know, that's why it's got to be customized depending on their comfort level. And then when I'm talking about skipping assets a generation to protect your rich kids from getting too rich, if you dump a whole bunch of acres on their balance sheet, sometimes we weave in general powers of appointment to avoid generation skipping taxes, yeah. uh, which is a terribly 
awful part of our internal revenue code that we shouldn't talk about much today other than just doing <laughs> its issue. And so general powers have a time and a place um, in some documents, but you know, the special power is much more for flexibility. So when I meet with new clients, one of the questions I ask them is, do you have a power to appoint any assets that are currently held in trust for your benefit? So it could be from a prior deceased spouse, it could be from grandma, mom, or dad. And the clients will say, well, gosh, I don't know. I never thought about that. Nobody tell me. And I say, let me see your dead mom's trust. You sure do have a power to appoint. Let's go ahead and exercise that so that your plan will govern what happens for your kids and grandkids because you know things that your dead mom could have never known. She's been gone to. So they're they're very, very helpful in making sure that all the family wealth um, flows according to today's circumstances and, and what's best for the family. You know, another term that, that we hear a lot that I think our audience out here may not have an idea what it is, is, is the term trust protector. So, you know, for a lot of our, I would say more advanced trusts or even not the advanced trust, there, there's going to be a trust protector in there. What What is the role of that trust protector? Um, really, it's it's checks and balances. You know, when you think about you, you're gone and you need to name a trustee today who's going to handle every possible decision, you know, for the benefit of your family. That's overwhelming. And maybe one person isn't right for that. And having a trust protector in a document, you can pick and choose what powers that trust protector has and, and different switches they can flip if things change. Um, and so maybe it's the ability to amend the trust or change the state where the trust is yep. or remove and replace the trustee because you thought you were picking the right trustee, but uh-uh, turns out they're not doing a good job or their bank and they merged 10 times and they're no longer local. So trust protectors can, can provide um, checks and balances. They're an independent party. And, and another aspect of this, you know, we're kind of talking about slicing and dicing the trustees' duties so that different people have different roles and it's not just all your eggs in one basket with one trustee. And this idea of a, of a trust protector, but I also kind of call it a family advisor. Mm -hmm. It's a panel of advisors. Um, you know, the trustees in charge of investing assets and filing tax returns and making distributions to beneficiaries. But you can have a family advisor who says, uh-uh, you know, don't you give that number three kid any money, they're in the middle of a divorce. Or don't you give that number two kid any money, they're spending it on drugs. And yeah. so to really be able to direct the trustee when and how to make distributions. And and if you got a bank serving as trustee, they love to be directed. Just somebody else tell me what to do. I don't I don't want the liability and headache of trying to parse out who's good, who's bad, and, and what this trust maker would have wanted me to do. They're getting direct instruction from somebody else whose only job is to know the family and keep tabs on people and make decisions that you would have made, you know, if you were still alive. So it, it it's all about all about balance and and that can be helpful to have those different roles filled by different people. What what are your thoughts? Let's say that uh, that the option for the trust to name a trustee is either the bank or the trust department of a bank versus an individual is is there any rules of thumbs when it's better to name let's say the bank versus an individual or is it, it i'm guessing it's really going to be for each situation but give us our thoughts on when is it better for a bank to be and i'm using the word bank in quotes i mean it could be a trust company and so on versus an individual 
Right. Um, there, there are lots of different factors at play here, but anytime we have a stepmommy situation and kids from a prior marriage, it wouldn't be a good idea for either one of them to be trustee, right? If yeah. the stepmom becomes trustee at dad's death, she's going to be focused on get as much income out as possible and dip into the principal as freely as she wants to. You know, she can stick her hand in the cookie jar. She's the beneficiary and the yeah. trustee. Yeah. Well, that's not good. But it's also not good to have the kids necessarily as trustee over stepmom because they don't want her to get anything. They want that yeah. trust bucket to be as big as possible when stepmommy finally goes. Yeah. So there's just that inherent conflict of interest. Or if you got three kids and you name one as trustee, well, the other two are instantly upset. And why is my brother my keeper? And I could do this too. And and do you want to put your children in that role over each other? And and then generally, the the larger the amount of assets are, the more risk there is. So if you name Uncle Bobby because he's your favorite and he'll do this trustee thing for free, but he squanders the money and makes terrible decisions and screws it up and it's all gone, well, Uncle Bobby probably doesn't have deep pockets to fix it. So yeah. for the more sophisticated amount of um, trusts and, and wealth at stake here, if a bank is trustee... Well, they're on the hook to do it exactly perfectly. And if there is a mistake, there are deep pockets to make you whole. So, yeah. yes, banks charge an annual trustees fee, but you get the benefit of knowing that it's being done properly and your wishes are being carried out. And if there is a problem, that the trust can be made whole. Um, so, so I go through all that with my clients. And then in the end, I'm still going to include a bunch of flexibility terms that the trustee can be removed and replaced if they're not doing a good job and they aren't communicating with the beneficiaries and making good decisions um, and, and that the trustee can can resign and a successor would have to come in. We don't want to force trustees to stay in a relationship that's bad. So yeah. the beneficiaries remove or we let the trustees resign, but all those terms should be customized. So if if my client has named three uh, three parties in succession as successor trustees, you know, family members, trusted friends then I'm still going to include a paragraph that says if all those people have been removed or resigned, well, then you're stuck with a bank. Yeah. So we don't want to let a greedy child kick out the handpicked trustees that mom and dad put in place to try to get at the money faster. If yeah. they fire everybody, well, then they can go bank shopping and pick a bank to be trustee. So I like at any rate for a corporate fiduciary to be my stopgap, to be my safety net. Um, if beneficiaries, uh, are trying to get rid of trustees so they can get at the money. Yeah, and I, I think um, I think clients do need to understand, or farmers need to understand that um, even though the bank is quote charging a fee, as you've mentioned, a lot of times family dynamics. The worst thing you can do is name one kid to be the the trustee because those family dynamics come into play, and then the other kids get resentful of that child. And and matter of fact. Uh, we were having a discussion the other day with uh, somebody related to me where, um, you know, dad, mom and dad finally passed away. And this isn't in the farm arena, but it's very similar. You know, so mom and dad passed away. They have their will. It's it's allocating certain pieces of property to one child and it's allocating other pieces of property to a couple other children named one of the kids as the executor and so she's going through the process of getting this all divvied up according to the will and the other two kids are mad at her because of the fact that they didn't get what they thought they wanted to get and and they're sort of blaming 
the executor for the issues and the executor is going, well, I had nothing to do with this. This is mom and dad's wishes. But, you know, you just have all that process of family dynamics. And of course, then they don't want to get together for Thanksgiving for two or three or four years. And then finally, <laughs> you know, things get sort of squared away. But it's just a lot of angst that goes on. And and so that, that brings up another point, um, because these kids are upset because they didn't get what they thought they were going to. So so this this entitlement has been brewing in there, that they're entitled to a certain something when mom and dad die and they've got that stuck in their head. And then if it doesn't happen, that's when it all breaks loose. So I really push my clients to be transparent. Yep. Once they've made the decision how it's going to be, let's tell the kids and let's just nip all that entitlement in the bud because they won't be dreaming of getting something else if they clearly know what the plan is. Um, so so that, that can be very helpful. And, and, and if a corporate fiduciary is the right answer to provide some balance, I'm always very careful with the trustee compensation language. Because again, if it was just stocks and bonds in an account somewhere, the trustee's fee would be a percentage of assets. And that's very standard and everybody kind of accepts that. Well, when it's farmland, there isn't necessarily that much more work for a trustee to do if, if you own 30 acres or 3,000 acres. Yeah, yeah. And, and the value per acre is, is in flux so often and right now so high um, that I will specifically write into my document that the trustee's fee shall not be based on the value of the trust property, but reasonable based on actual services rendered. And then we go bank shopping. And if they're not okay with that, well, then we don't want them as our trustee. Right, you go to the next bank and you're going to find somebody that's more than willing to do that. Yeah, exactly. What What are you seeing? Are you seeing more and more families that you deal with where there's not a family successor? You know, there's a, let's say, a hired man that's been with the farm for multiple years. And, and instead of kids coming back to taking over the farm, they're helping this uh, hired person come in and take over that role. Are, are you seeing more and more of that? Yes, it's it's becoming so much more common, and um, the uh, you know my clients will spend the first chunk of the meeting just bragging about their children. Now oh, this one's in London, and this one's in LA, and they live all over the world and have amazing jobs. And then I say, okay, so what are we gonna, what's going to happen with your operation? Are are you going to retire or die? And then there's a there's an auction, everything gets sold off, and the the neighbors around you just gobble it all up. And they're like, well, no, that's not what I want at all. And then we start talking about, you know, while those kids have been off globetrotting, there's been some non-related successors side by side helping grow the business and keep the day to day done. And those are really fun plans to work on where we figure yeah. out how to transition the operation to this unrelated successor. You know, not for free. They're going to buy it. But there's a whole big gray area of, of defining the price they buy in. You know, they pay on installment so that it's not so burdensome so that this retiring farmer gets some gets something out of that operation, but gets to see it go on in somebody that they've trained and that they've introduced to their landlords and and they trust on their own land. So that's really neat and different. I really like those plans. Um, and then we take steps to make sure that, that that retiring farmer's land is still available to that successor. Yep. yep. For a while, the, maybe not forever, but the spouse and kids can't sell it out from under. It's going to stay intact and be leased back to that successor operator um, and, and provide a stream of income for the family all over the world. <laughs> And, and I think a lot of times you see uh, that 
perhaps when they sell the equipment and so on, it's not necessarily a fair market value. You know, they want to want to. I see a lot of times they want to help that uh, younger farmer to succeed because they know how expensive all that equipment can be. And and plus, if if they meet with Polly and they meet with Paul, uh, that uh, we're going to be able to come up with some creative tax ways of maybe minimizing that tax, so they're willing to pass some of those tax savings on to the onto the successor and that's true whether it's a related party or a non-related party yes and and i'm glad that we're talking about that here because i just like to open people's minds that there's more than one way to exit farming and, and it doesn't just have to be you know your widow auctions the equipment and everybody splits the money that this can be a really great way to make sure that there are still young farm families in your community living in houses sending their kids to school shopping at the local grocery store because uh, if the big farmers just keep getting bigger, then then there's no space for young um, for young farmers to come and be a part of the community. Matter of fact, I think you and I have a call later on this morning or this afternoon. Your time on on a possible uh, uh, transition uh, using maybe a charitable remainder trust. Yep, yep. We're doing a charitable remainder trust and, and selling some S corp stock to an unrelated successor for a retiring farmer. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we got you know, accountants at the table helping with this locally too. So it, it takes a team approach, but just everybody remember when you retire from farming, it is a nightmare income tax scenario unless you do something about it. And we've got some some tricks and tools that that help with that. Now, you know, we, we've mentioned at the beginning the use of a trust. Uh, maybe for our audience out there, maybe we could go over what are com what I'm gonna call the common type trust that we tend to look at right now. And let's start off with a spousal lifetime access trust. When when might that be a, a good option for a client? Yeah, um, anytime before the end of 2025 is gonna be a fantastic option or maybe sooner, depending on, on how these midterm elections and the 2024 general election um, pan out. But I would say that SLATS, spousal lifetime access trust, are just the hottest buzzword in estate planning for the last two years and for the next three years. So yeah. talk about a tax nerd, like I am also a tax nerd <laughs> and slats are cool, slats are in vogue. And so the thought is, um, you know, this takes us into the estate tax exemption um, as it is now and what we expect to happen to it. Uh, right now under the current tax act, uh, each individual person has um, $12.06 million of exemption. So a married couple has $24.12 million um, of exemption to cover assets that they want to give away during lifetime or pass um, at death. But the current tax act has an expiration date at the end of 2025 and will sunset. And then the exemption will be about 6.6 .6 million per person or 13.2 for a married couple. Yep. And I say about because it's indexed to inflation, so we don't know the exact numbers. And so the, the idea is you got to use it or lose it. That, that $22 million of exemption is very valuable. And you don't just sit back and wring your hands and plan to die before the end of 2025. You got to use it. And so not a lot of clients are excited about giving 12 or $22 million, $24 million uh, 
to their kids. Yeah. No one wants yeah. to do that. Heck no, I don't want my kids to have that much money and I don't want to give up the income off those assets. Yep. So the spousal lifetime access trust uh, is, is a neat little trick where you give uh, $12 million into a trust that benefits your spouse for spouse's lifetime. So within your marital cash flow, nothing has changed. The income is still there. And spouse can be the trustee and it can be really flexible, but you've used your exemption so that at spouse's death, it's not included in spouse's estate. It it can grow from, from 12 to 30 million during spouse's lifetime and then go to the kids' uh, estate tax-free. So yeah, there, there are some risks, you know, with blended families, we're real careful about this. Or if you get divorced or if your spouse dies the day after you put 12 million in there, well, yeah, now it's at the kids' level. But but still, you have um, leveraged this exemption before it expires, um, and and lots of folks are signing up to do that. So you can pretty pretty easily do one slat. You know, one spouse gives twelve point oh six million um, into a trust for their spouse's benefit. But when it comes to reciprocal slats, you know, for farms that are worth way more than twenty four million dollars, you want to use both exemptions before they expire. Those can be done, but they're tricky and they got to be done yep. right. So, yeah, make sure you don't do them at the same time. Make sure the the trust clauses and all the clauses in the trust aren't exactly the same, and 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 so on. But uh, now, speaking of that, I, I think there's some misconceptions out there about the lifetime exemption. Uh, so right now, we got six million that came from the old law. I'm going to say, and we got this bonus of six million. The the I'm going to call it the bonus. And I think a lot of people think, well, if I give six million, that's going to come out of the bonus, and then in 2026, I'm still going to have my old six million available, and that's really not correct. So let's go through that a little bit. How does it work? So when we come to 2026, let's say that we've given six million dollars in 2022, and then we come to 2026. What's our lifetime exemption at that time, assuming there's no inflation? Yeah, zero. You you used it already. It's gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the only win here, the only benefit to this kind of planning is if you give away more than six million dollars, because yep. you're still you're going to have six million of exemption in 2026. But it's the difference between six and 12 that you're going to lose. So, you, you know, you give away six million and one dollars, you've won, uh, yeah. but not by much. So, yeah. you know, well, make, make it, it worth it. And then also with the with the family, let's say they're worth twenty four million, and they say, well, we're willing to give away twelve million dollars. So, you know, one spouse is going to set up a slap for the other spouse for six million, and then conversely, the other spouse can do the same thing. Well, when it comes to twenty twenty six, they have no exemption left. Whereas if the one spouse had set up a twelve million dollar slat, then you come to 2026, the other spouse has still got their $6 million exemption left. So you, you have to be careful to make sure you understand, you know, if you're going to use a slat and depending on the situation, maybe you only do one slat or like you said, you're well over 24 million. Hey, go ahead and do a, uh, do a $12 million slat for each of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is all very scary. So the way I put it in perspective for my clients is if you're married and you're worth less than 13 million, this doesn't apply to you. Yep. Yeah. We, we, you know, in 2026, if we go to six and a half million per person, 13 for a married couple. And if your assets are under that and you expect them to stay under that, no sweat. But hey, I'm going to push you 
are you really under that? What's your ground worth? What are you valuing it at? Are you lowballing it on your financial statement? Yeah. And what are the auctions like in your township? Because here in the Midwest, we are just seeing astronomical land sales, um, you know, not for development, but for farming, just huge yeah. numbers. And yeah. so that same farmer might be worth several million dollars more than they think they are because they're just saying, oh, fooey, you know, these land values will go back down. This is crazy. It can't last. Well, yeah. if you die tomorrow, your land is worth what your neighbors have been selling for. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important for them to understand. We need to know if you die tomorrow. And it's always, it seems like you ask the question, if you get killed by a beer truck, you know, it's never, it's always a beer truck. I'm not sure why. I mean, every time I hear that term brought up, it's always a beer truck, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why, but we need to know what is the real number, not the number you think it is, not the number you use at the bank, but what is the real number? And then also what I find a lot of times, especially maybe with older farmers, especially, maybe not the younger ones, you start asking, well, do you have life insurance? And you find out they got 12 different policies and it adds up to $5 million. And they thought, well, that's not going to be included in my estate. Well, it is included in your estate. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, I need to know what you are worth dead because yeah. that's your estate tax number. Yeah. And and the the balance sheet you give your banker that may or may not even bother to list the piddly amount of cash value inside those life insurance policies, it's missing millions of dollars worth of assets that I need to know about so we can address it. So those are the two adjustments I'm always making on a balance sheet is what's your land really worth and how much life insurance do you have? Yeah, and 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 then because uh, uh, there's things that we can do uh, if they have that life insurance, you know, we can set up an irrevocable life insurance trust. Then we tell them, hey, make sure that you live for at least three more years, because if you don't, then that's brought into your estate. So, yeah. you know, we're we're getting close to the end of our discussion. And I think, uh, Polly, we'll definitely have another one or two of these podcasts. I think we could do even more of a deeper dive into some of this stuff. But if 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 somebody is in the state of Indiana, certainly they can reach out to you. But what I have found, and I think you've gone through the same issues that I have at times, you know, especially our firm, you know, we work with farmers all over the country and some states have a lot of good farm estate tax attorneys others do not or are you seeing the same issues when you go outside of your state oh yes it's it's uh it's very important that that as the the farm assets grow uh, that they level up the advice they're getting so that it matches so that you're getting good advice and and a lot of times it's the you know your best your grandpa's best friend that goes to your church that practices law in the courthouse square probably isn't up to speed on the most advanced estate planning techniques and it's important that you go find someone who is but unfortunately there's this big void between the fancy lawyers in the big cities who charge over $600 an hour and don't know what bushels are or the difference mm -hmm. between a combine and a planter they know estate taxes but they don't know farming and and then the um the local attorneys who help farmers with all their day-to-day -day needs but they don't know the estate tax uh end of it uh, at, a, at a deeper level so there is a void there and you gotta ask and you gotta you gotta go find advisors who can help you uh put a plan together for your family farm well and i know certainly again you mentioned uh on this call we're gonna have later on today i'm gonna be on that call this is for a, a indiana farmer but i'm there just to help 
give some advice, uh, be a reviewer of it. And I do that with lots of CPAs and attorneys across the country. I'm not interested in stealing your client or anything like that. I'm just interested in helping your client situation. Yeah, yeah. And I um, I do have a handful of out-of-state clients where, where I'm more just like a consultant because the federal estate tax applies to everybody. Yeah. And so I can learn about the family, learn about the assets, help put a plan together. But then the, the local lawyer in your town who's licensed to do deeds and will in the state where you live can can do that. So, um, yeah, don't don't be afraid to reach out for help. But it might just be by going up the road a few miles. You can find an advisor in your own state uh, who can help uh, with this added layer of sophistication on your estate plan. And I guess. Uh... One option for you and I to consider in our spare time, which I'm I'm not sure if we have much of that, uh, is is maybe we can come up with a national database. But then that also creates other issues as to you know how do you vet that and so on. So maybe that's not even a good idea. Yeah, that's <laughs> tricky. It'd be great if you could just click on a link and and find uh, find a farm lawyer who knows how to do this stuff. But just ask around, and, yeah. and you'll find through your advisors and. Um, you know, even through Farm Journal, hey, who's good in this area? Who could yep. help me with X, Y, Z? But um, just, I know that it's much easier to stick your head in the sand and ignore this and just think everything's going to work out okay. Um, but it's the, it's tricky. Yep. It's tricky, and the laws are always changing. And and this, this farm that that you've built throughout your lifetime and career, it deserves some special planning so that it transitions like you want and everybody's plan is different so um, well and i want to echo what you said it's very important when you do set up your plan be very transparent with the people they're going to inherit uh, the the last thing you want to do is have them find out what's in the plan when you pass away i mean that just creates angst in the family and and you get that uh, uh, sibling rivalry going on and so on so just be very transparent uh, doesn't mean that you're going to communicate to them. Uh, doesn't mean you're going to let them make you change your mind, but you just need to make sure they understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I host a lot of family meetings where my clients are just like, okay, we signed everything, but Polly, could you please explain this to the kids so it's coming yeah. from you? Because we don't want to tell them or we're afraid we'll tell them wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, yeah, haul them all in or throw the, throw the Globetrotter kids on a Zoom and, and we'll talk about it. And, and then if you know what you're expecting and what's not coming your way, uh, that, that can really help quash a lot of those brewing entitlement battles. Especially if you explain to them, here's our reasons why we did it this way. You know, we have, we've thought it out. We think this is what's best for the family and so on and so forth. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, Polly, like I say, this has been very, very informative, I think, for our audience out there. I think definitely we'll have another session or two where we'll uh, dive into maybe a little bit more details. I think uh, it, it's important for our clients to understand that we can be very flexible on this. We can definitely meet their needs, uh, but this is something they shouldn't procrastinate on. We have, like you mentioned, we have about a three-year window, 22 through 25, to really do a lot of good planning for you. And if you procrastinate and it's suddenly 2026, uh, maybe you're, heirs are facing an extra tax liability of four or five million dollars that you could have prevented. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure we won't be taking new clients in 2025 or, or certainly by like June yeah. or August. The pipeline will be so full just helping our existing clients 
plan for this change in the tax law. So so don't don't wait. Get a foundational yeah. plan in place, and and have uh, kind of a, a future memo of here's what we're going to do if and when the tax law change. But don't yeah. think you're going to start from scratch and get it all done on Christmas in 2025 because nobody's going to be around to help you. We're all going to be too busy. Yeah, that's that's very important to bring up. So with that, Polly, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to having uh, another discussion with you in the near future. All right. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Again, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, signing off. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness.